midlife. The Midwest. It's the middle class. The millennials. Baby boomers. West Coast. East Coast. The far right. The far left. What we need is a middle ground. Middle ground. Middle. Middle. Middle ground. Anyway, all right, welcome to Middle Ground. Uh, I'm Chris Otto. And I'm Chris Kellish. Uh, a big week for us, and a lot of credit goes to Chris Otto, but uh, we are on iTunes now. and uh... We are. That's very exciting. So, yeah, we're on not only iTunes, but we are on. Fa- we have a Facebook feed, we have a Twitter feed, uh, and we're already, all, all of our previous episodes are on iTunes, so follow, 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 subscribe. We need subscribers. That's what we need. Yeah, we need subscribers. And for those of you out there who are debating whether or not to do this, I'll make it real simple for you. And I think I speak for Chris and myself when I speak to the general population out there. Please do. You, you don't have enough distractions, uh, and you need more. And this is just another one of those. And we're happy to be a part of your lives. Uh, Twitter, Facebook, the Internet, goofing off at work, texting your friends, emailing your friends, Facebooking your friends. It's not enough. You need more. Chris and Chris are the answer. Absolutely. I'll keep it simple. Just Insta us, snap us, review us, rate us, like us, love us, whatever you need to do. We're your one-stop podcast because we're going to cover news. We're going to cover sports. Uh, We cover Tinder. (laughs) <laughs> and and sex and you know so swipe right on us uh, do whatever you need to do that's what we're, we're the doing. white middle aged Kardashians maybe even a little bit more desperate for attention who knows absolutely we're right here in the middle in the Midwest in the middle class in the middle of our lives uh, loving all of it that's all so, we can say so uh, I'll just get right to something I Let's had get to this it. week yeah might as well get to it we've got a great guest coming up but um, I did something so stupid that it makes you lose confidence for uh, a couple of days and you just feel like an idiot and you're really not, it takes you at least a week to recover. You're just not the same. I'll That's keep my it real favorite s- way. That's my favorite way to start the podcast, by the way, with that statement. Yeah. So Saturday, uh, it's, it's actually, it's the first day of a- second day of April, but there's a blizzard outside. It's freezing cold and it's snow. So snow in April. And uh, I go outside to Dunkin' Donuts uh, my mom got me a, a Dunkin' Donuts gift card for Easter, so I'm going to go get some coffee and warm up that way, the old-fashioned way. What does CK do? He walks out of the apartment without his keys. Uh, yeah, nice. and, oh, the roommate's not around, so I get home. I'm trying to think, how can I get into this apartment? How can I get into this apartment? I've got my cell phone with me, no keys. There's a number on the does uh, a 24-hour locksmith on the uh, right there on the buzzer there at the front of the building I live in. I call that number. Guy swings by within 20 minutes. We go around the back. You've been to my condo, Chris. So you know, in the back, up the back deck there, there's a right. private entrance. The guy pulls out a couple of funny little-looking tools. And gets me in the apartment without even have to hardly having the Jimmy the thing. Gets me in the apartment in about 35 seconds of work. Turns around in that kind of that creepy Russian voice, and he goes, "Okay, my friend, that would be 150." <laughs> nice, 150 dollars U.S. American. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, uh, what'd you think it was going to be rubles or something? Well, it was. You know, and I, I go, "Are you kidding me?" He goes. It's okay, the weekend, my man. It's the weekend, man. If it was during the week, it would be less. I'm like, I highly doubt that. I think the scam goes on during the week too, but forked over the visa. You know, you don't want to pay cash, or anything. you just you put it on the visa because you don't want to look at it and acknowledge it. Well, you know, if you put it on your visa, it's not your money. It's somebody else's money. <laughs> it's the government's. <laughs> yeah, they'll come back and ask you for it later. But what the hell? Right now, it's not my money. I don't care. $150 cash or 6,700 rubles. <laughs> rubles. You still think the ruble is the Russian ruble still working? <laughs> My God. That will be 25,000 rubles. 
or I give you discount. Twenty-four thousand. Yes, thank you, Ivan. Uh, I don't so, even know what kind of accent that was. It wow, was well, Serbian. I thought it was a Serbian with a mix of uh, Ukrainian in there, but I actually, I was going Croatian. I, I'm, did nice. I come off Serbian? It went Serbian. I'm sorry. Yeah, you're a little to the east, my friend. A little to the east. Come on back. Wow, sorry to hear that. That's a terrible, That's uh, right. terrible way to start your fun. weekend. Well, and then uh, you ended your weekend with the final four. National Championship game Monday night. I'm sure our listeners, if they didn't see it, they've certainly heard about it by now, but being touted as the greatest national championship game ever. And I just want to note that Michigan State would have beaten both of those teams. Yeah, I, that that part bothered me. And then here's – I'm an idiot, okay, because there's a lot of stuff going on. <laughs> we've remember already established told, remember, that no, tonight. We've, <laughs> we've established that, and I'm a danger both to myself and now apparently others. But remember how I told you once State got knocked out that I lost all interest in the tournament? Yeah, yeah, me too. I didn't know that during that national championship game, there were literally two separate feeds. You could watch a feed for, as a Villanova fan, or you could watch a feed as a Carolina fan. I didn't know. I, I didn't watch it. So I'm, I don't. I lost interest in the game. I'm thumbing through the dials, and I come, I come across the last few minutes. Very, very exciting, obviously, the last few minutes. Yeah. So the kid from Villanova hits the winning shot, and all they show is Carolina's heartbreak, break, Michael Jordan, Everyone, just uh, Carolina in tears. Uh, Brendan Haywood, who was a Tar Heel, is calling the game with the announcing team. And I didn't know it was two separate feeds. And I go, what the heck is this? No one is showing Villanova celebrating? And I thought I thought the, I thought thought it was a disgraceful. And then I went, then the, so I posted something awful on Facebook about what a shameful thing that was. And then the next morning it dawned on me, was there two separate feeds? Yeah, there was two separate feeds. I'm an idiot. I apologize. How did you, I, you so you didn't have the Jim Nance call, the, the national call? No, I caught this thing on TNT. It was a special feed for Carolina fans. That was just for, if you were a Carolina fan, it was all Carolina broadcast. It was all pro-Carolina calling the game. Shots of Michael Jordan in the crowd. Very little shots of Villanova. You didn't. They didn't talk about Villanova. It was all Carolina. I couldn't figure out what the heck it was. What, do you have your TV set on like second audio program, the SAP setting, where you get like the Spanish feed or something? I mean, how did you get an alternative audio feed? I'm not lying. It was on. T- it was not an alternative. It's just on TNT, Chris. It was on TNT. Yeah, that's weird, and it kind of spoils like the like one of the greatest moments in college basketball history for you. <laughs> Apparently <laughs> Sorry, it man. was one of the saddest. <laughs> yeah. Well, for if you're a Tar Heel, it was, that was oh, heartbreaking. Come on. You know what? And I, and I, let me say this, cause you and I have taken, you know, have taken our lumps from Carolina in the past being state fans. No sympathy for Roy Williams and the no, Carolina heartbreak. Something tells me they'll be back here. Oh, 365 days from now. I mean, it, I it's never ending. I know. Well, it's it's hilarious because three seconds after that game ended, ESPN came out with the way too early rankings for the 2016-2017 season. Duke number one, Kentucky number two, North Carolina three. It's like, why don't you just roll that shit out every single year? Same and teams. they do. What a shock. Anyway. So, all right. So speaking of, it was actually an exciting week because that was a great game, even though, you know, Big Ten was shut out of it. But... We did have an exciting thing here in the Midwest this week when our state of Wisconsin did their job. They did their job and completely fucked with the presidential (laughs) election process on both the Democratic Party and the Republican Party. Everyone thought they knew what was going on, and Wisconsin just took their middle finger and shoved it up everybody's ass. They haven't had this much of an effect on the national outcome of things since they had a senator by the name of Joe McCarthy. Is that too much of an extreme? (laughs) 
Can I say that? You, you cannot overstate it because now, and I, you know it's on tape, right? I've been saying this for weeks. The Republican convention is going to be the best reality television show ever. Yeah. Chaos. Yeah. That, Chaos. I don't want to say that that ensured it becoming a brokerage convention, but Absolutely. it went a long way towards doing that. I, so well, I think you're right. I don't think anybody now can get enough delegates. And if they do, I think the last set of delegate comes the day before the convention. It's like the California primary or something. So it's going to go right down to the wire anyway. Um, I just, you know, I'll say it again. In fact, today, I heard today the possibility of Rubio coming back. Can you believe that? No, I think yeah. I think it's I think somehow Paul Ryan gets in there before Rubio does. That's my take. I think I think it's Ryan before Rubio. Yeah, a lot of people are saying that, and I you know I would love it. I, I'm a big Paul Ryan fan, but he keeps saying no, no way, I'm not going to do it. Um, which of course is what he said about being of speaker of the house. Well, he's too, saying so. the right things. I mean, if he is thinking of doing it, it's too early yet to say it. So if he's waiting in the shadows, I think he's doing the right thing. Question for you. Um, I know you're a Michigan guy. I know you're a Chicago guy. Uh, any time in Wisconsin, any girlfriends or anything like that spend any significant time in Wisconsin? Uh, the answer is yes. Affirmative. I, uh, actually I worked in Wisconsin for a short period of time, one or two days a week at a, at WISN channel 12, uh, the ABC affiliate in Milwaukee as a sports guy. <laughs> I did. Doing the Brewers scores. Packers, I did. Yeah. In fact, it was a great job. I covered the, I was there like, I think it was January through April. So I got to cover opening the last opening day. Milwaukee County Stadium. County that's right. Stadium. Miller. Yeah. In fact, that was when Miller Park was under construction and that big crane collapsed and killed Ooh, a couple guys. Yeah, 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 uh, yeah. Covered that. The so Glenn Robinson years, I want to say. You would have yes. been covering the Bucks during the Glenn Robinson years. Yeah. Covered Bucks games. I covered uh, University of Mar or Marquette University basketball. Tom yes. Crean was the coach then. Dwayne. Oh, nice. Dwayne Wade was there. Um, so it was, it was a fun time. I'll tell you a quick story about that though, because, uh, it was January through late January through, um, probably April after it was after the Super Bowl, And I don't even remember who was in the Super Bowl that year, but football NFL, my point is NFL clearly done, right? This is the, right. the time of sports where it's spring training and then baseball starts early April. Uh, you got the NBA, they don't have an NHL hockey team. So there was real little hockey information there. Uh, there was college basketball, high school basketball, but uh, one time I was editing a Saturday night newscast, the sportscast for the six o'clock and the eleven o'clock show. I'm editing it for the first time all by myself. I'm choosing the footage. I'm editing it on the big machines. This is back before digital, and I go to the sports director and I'm like, "All right, here's my uh, here's my six minutes or whatever. What do you think?" He watches it and he goes, "No, no, no. You got to go back and do it again. There's no Packers news," and I was like, "Dude, it's mid February." There's nothing going on in the NFL. And he was like, look, this is Milwaukee. You got to have Packers news every single night. Go You're find kidding. something. I swear to God. What so was I, there on the wire? What could you even gone with? What was on the wire? Anything? I Brett, literally, Favre, Brett Favre relaxing at home in Mississippi? <laughs> Brett no, Favre they, played some golf today in Kiln, Mississippi, his off-season home. I wish. Oh, if that was, if it was Brett Favre, it would have been, it would have been headline news, top of the show. Right. No, I, I found footage of a uh, or no not even footage i found something on the, the news feed about a second string offensive guard uh re-signing a contract <laughs> i swear to god so we had to dig up archival footage of this guy in a game like the previous season and just run that and write the story and that was the packers news that we led the sports cast with it, it was unbelievable nice. unbelievable did you really lead with it yeah, oh yeah it was first it was first <laughs> 
I still I still have it. I have the tape to prove it. And it's on, you know, it's on like a, a three quarter inch tape. You remember those giant plastic broadcast quality tapes? <laughs> you and I were trained on those, my friend, at Michigan State when we were both dreaming of working at WLNS in Lansing. Seriously. And this, I mean, we're not even talking VHS. We're not even talking beta. These were those big three quarter inch, uh, like the size of a, a Bible or something. I yeah. Mean, two hands. Two handed yeah. on those. You can't, pick, oh. you can't pick it with one hand. That, that big clunky noise it makes exactly nice job nice job on the 10 o'clock up there good job thank you yeah that's a quick wisconsin news good good good. uh well i was going to say just to link it back to trump nicest people in the world um and it makes perfect sense to me that they would have taken a one look at donald trump and said "Uh uh-uh you're not selling that here you can't sell that to those people it's interesting because every single one of these primaries he pulls down about 30 percent of the vote every single time 30 percent of republicans and they keep saying if you go take him to the general election he's only got 30 percent of the republicans so he's going to get crushed when you throw in all the democratic voters in as well he cannot win a general election um and now it's starting to happen where cruz is getting more than his than his share more than the 30 percent in some of these states and trump's just staying it, it, I heard somebody say, say today, I think it was George Stephanopoulos or something, uh, that Trump not only has a concrete floor, you know, his support doesn't fall below a certain number, but now he's got kind of a concrete ceiling where he never goes above like 30, 35 percent. And that you're right. That is not going to cut it. I don't know the, how much momentum this is the one guy we're not talking about because the stench is equally bad as Ted Cruz. <laughs> who actually beat him but it's like okay so we knocked trump out who's next oh cruz no who else we got i feel like cruz is kind of a tomato can they're throwing up there they're <laughs> letting him letting him we know the fighter's really good so we're gonna just put this like old uh washed up white guy fighter against him in this one boxing match uh until we find somebody who can who can beat up the champ he is jerry um, cooney remember jerry <laughs> yeah jerry cooney to ali and ali took him down to the mat yeah absolutely well they, they called him the great white hope i think he was <laughs> <laughs> oh man, that is awful. We're really dating ourselves. Ted Cruz, uh, we're the, the great only white ones hope. that'll date us at this point, uh, Chris. So that's the way it goes. Uh, oh, that's not true. I'm, you know, I'm still hanging nice in job. there. I'm, do- I'm doing all right. Nice. I'm doing all right. Good week for drama. It was a drama <laughs> week. <laughs> well, I'm glad you're back in the Midwest and on middle ground. So. Yes, exactly. All right. Well, let's get to our guest, and I'm. Uh, this is going to be kind of fun. Our guest today is a guy. His name is Sam Taufik. He lives in San Diego, California. He's 53 years old, has a successful career in, I don't know, software development, marketing, something like that. He's a software architect. Well, okay. There you go. I like that. He has two teenage daughters. He is married to a beautiful younger woman. But the story, his story, and the reason we have him on is because he was raised just down the road... (laughs) from the ancient pyramids in Cairo, Egypt, which uh, is fascinating because he he went to school in Egypt, uh, spoke Arabic, obviously, and and learned a little bit of English, but moved to the United States, to Southern California, uh, when he was a teenager, I think 15, 16, 17 years old. So we're going to talk to him about that. Did I miss anything? Nope, I think he got it. That's uh, the rest I think he can tell us. There you go. All right. So let's give a middle ground welcome to Sam Taufik. Welcome, man. Thank you, Chris and Chris. Glad to be on. Thanks, Sam, for being here. We appreciate it. 
not that it's important to this interview at all, but probably should get this off the off my chest right at the beginning. You're my brother-in-law. We've known each other for decades. You're uh, the brother I never had. I say that all the time. Of course, my, my brother gets pissed off when I say that. <laughs> You're the brother you wish you had. Exactly. Chris said that to me just last weekend, or was it the weekend before, right? That's right. Well, I saw you in California. Yeah, you're my favorite brother. So, But let's keep that amongst ourselves. <laughs> Chris and I talked about this a while ago, about having you on and, you know, having family on is always kind of strange because it seems a little, you know, insular or whatever. But your story of how you came to the U.S. is a great one. I mean, you are uh, born and raised at, at least until, what, your early teens in Cairo, Egypt. And your real name is Usama Taufik. We call you Sam. We've always called you Sam. But I've always been fascinated by the fact that you and your family immigrated here, essentially from Egypt. Um, all of you. I mean, you have a big family. I'll have you talk about that for a minute. And now your nieces and nephews and, you know, everybody is here in the U.S. In Southern California, you all live in either Los Angeles or San Diego and, and other places, but centrally located in Southern California. And uh, it's just fascinated me the kinds of things you've had to face um, with your name being sounding Middle Eastern. You look Middle Eastern. And the assumption, I think, especially in the last 10 to 15 years, is that you are might be Muslim or Middle Eastern. And that obviously has become a huge issue in the United States over the, the, the last decades, especially since 9-11. So that's the primary reason I think it's a, you have a really great story. So having said that, how did you guys end up, your family end up coming to the U.S.? Um, what, how did that transpire? So it really all started with uh, my older uh, sister, Suzanne, uh, who actually migrated to, to the U.S. and uh, Los Angeles uh, in the early 70s. And for she spent almost the entire 70s trying to convince my dad uh, to move us all out to, uh, to California or the United States, uh, more, uh, more general. Uh, there is actually, uh, you brought up the uh, large family, so I have uh, four sisters, including Suzanne, and two brothers and my parents, so actually that's a family of nine, and Suzanne was here, married, and lived here almost all of the 70s, and uh, she spent basically the whole decade trying to convince my dad to move us out here. Uh, he wasn't really quite sure, you know, if that's the right move for a big family. And, of course, uh, my older sisters were actually older, grown up, uh, post-college. So it wasn't like it was going to be packing up everybody and moving with uh, really no choice. So anyway, um, uh, finally, my dad gave in towards the end of the 70s and uh, said, OK, uh, let's do this. And, of course, uh, we had to go through the long immigration process and getting everything uh processed and handled. Uh, and uh, it seemed, of course, I was younger, so it seemed like it took forever for that process. And then all of a sudden, we were, okay, we're ready to move. So actually, in May of uh, 1979, uh, I was uh, the first, uh, me and along my uh, uh, my other sister, Sonia, we uh, we immigrated here. It was a one-way ticket to here, and we were the first ones to come out. And then uh, slowly, the family followed uh, over the following months and years, and eventually the whole family ended up in uh, Los Angeles, and we all pretty much lived in the area, and then all started, uh, I started going to high school along, as, uh, along with my younger brother, 
uh, and we uh, I, I came in right into senior year of high school, so you can imagine. So you were about 17 when you got here. I was, yes. Was life in Egypt uh, that bad? I mean, was it, you know, obviously Suzanne wanted to get all of you here. Were, was your family sort of struggling? Uh, obviously, she thought life in the U.S. would be better. What, what was the situation? It, it wasn't, so it wasn't really a struggle at all. I mean, Egypt is a great place, and unfortunately, I haven't been back since then, believe it or not. So uh, I'm sure it's completely different, but it was, a, it was a nice place to live. So it's not that great. <laughs> you left and didn't go back. I think you found something pretty good. Things were not really bad. It was just more about the opportunity. And my sister, I got to give her a lot of credit. She's probably the smartest one in the family. I'll admit that. And that she saw that, you know, the opportunity here in the United States will, will be far better than in Egypt. And in retrospect, even had, had things continued to be as they were in Egypt and even got better, uh, I don't think there was any way, any chance that we could have... Uh, ended up in the position we're in right now in terms of the opportunities that we've all had and where we are in our careers and families. And You know, it's one thing to immigrate to the United States, but I just keep thinking, man, coming into Los Angeles in 1979, right as the 80s are about to take off, you know, pop culture and all that stuff, that must have been, can I say, was it mind-blowing? I mean, when you get off the plane, at, I don't know if you landed at LAX or wherever, but what was that like? Did you just think, did your whole world just open up? Were you scared? Were you excited? What What were the emotions at the time? I was too young and too naive to be scared. Uh, looking back, uh, it seems to me like, oh my gosh, how how could we have managed? How could I? How did I even manage that? Being thrown into, I mean, I studied English in school in school for about five years, uh, but not conversation English. Uh, so being thrown in there, high school uh, at the time, I mean, I, I even remember the drive. Uh, uh, to my sister's house from the airport, LAX it was, dri- driving home and just looking around, seeing the different buildings and different streets. And I wasn't like completely, oh my gosh, this is unbelievable. What I'm at awe. It was like, um, okay, this is the next step. How do we deal with that? And, and I think that's probably part of it is my personality, adapt as quickly as possible. I can attest to your adaptability because you certainly adapted very well to having two assholes as brothers-in-law. <laughs> so, your words. Good job. <laughs> Not mine. Yeah, good job by that. So 1979, Los Angeles, it seems to me, and I, I might be naive to this, but uh, you know, it seems like it was probably a good I don't know, 10, 20 years before being Middle Eastern had a stigma. So I did change my name to Sam because it was just easier. And that's kind of um, true. My legal name is Osama, and it's with a U, not an O. Um, And uh, believe it or not, that was a character in most children's books uh, growing up. Osama was a common name with the spelling with a U, not an O. So that's how I spelled it. But I started going by Sam, so I think uh, that was probably foresightful, especially with Osama bin Laden coming, uh, you know, coming later, 10, 15 years later. Uh, so I did change that early on. Uh, and L.A. is very accommodating. It's a big place. There is lots of Egyptians. We went to churches and stuff. And I didn't really feel uh, that I was different or treated different, believe it or not, until... Uh, we moved to Michigan. That's when I started for the first time feeling that I was different. That, that's actually a good segue, and I wanted to get to that. Oddly, in 1993, Sam, when you married my sister, um, you 
got a job through your company sort of coincidentally we my family was obviously from michigan living in in the la area but you got a job back in the detroit area and you and kim moved back to michigan which was really strange because it seemed to me i remember back then thinking that's the last place sam wants to live in the in the snow in the winter i mean you went from <laughs> egypt to la and now you're in the midwest i mean that was crazy i did adapt pretty quickly actually kim chris's sister uh, is the one that actually didn't adapt so quickly because her family was left in Southern California. But I was able to adapt. I embraced a new experience and never seeing the the leaves change colors, living in the snow and so on. It was a fun experience. We spent three winters there, uh, but that was probably enough, um, especially as also as I alluded to the fact that uh, felt being different, maybe looked at differently because I guess considered a mixed couple, um, uh, something that obviously I wasn't used to in uh, living in Los Angeles. But uh, So what was it that made you want to move to Michigan in the first place? The riots in, in Los Angeles in 92 really had an effect on a lot of uh, people that lived in L.A., including me. I, I still love L.A., and that to, to this day, I would move back and live in L.A. I'm one of the few people that really love L.A. and love that edgy environment and so on. But um, the riots in 92 really changed the perspective for a lot of people. It just, things were not the same. The places I went to or used to hang out with or drive by just didn't have the same feeling. And uh, we, we did get married in the beginning of uh, 1993, and we're starting to think we're uh, right after the riots, then in, in the summer, we started thinking we're getting married in the uh, beginning of the year. Where should we live and raise kids? And I suggested, how about we move to Michigan? So that was the plan all along, is that we we got married, went on our, our honeymoon, came back the day before the Super Bowl, and um, uh, and we the next day, we actually headed to on a one-way ticket to Detroit. Uh, and then I started a new job. So newly married, new place, and starting a new job. I, I think those are two or the three of the most stressful things that you can do other than dying, of course. I, I think I saw a horror movie once called uh, One Way Ticket to Detroit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But it, it's, it, it's, it, it's interesting, though, in Detroit, a lot of people may not know this, but, but the Detroit metropolitan area has one of the highest populations of Middle Eastern people in the U.S. with Assyrian people, Chaldean people. So you would think, though, that you going there, you would have been just as openly accepted there. Where Did you feel that way? Well, I, I, and I, I don't think it was my race specifically. It was the fact uh, that uh, I was not white and my wife was white. Uh, and I, I was shocked, wow. completely shocked to, to actually see that. And maybe it was isolated. And I'm, again, I'm kind of naive about this stuff. Maybe I don't notice it as much as I should notice it, but I did notice it definitely. Yeah. So um, just jumping ahead about, I don't know, six, seven years, 9-11 happens. How did that change your perception of how you were treated and did it change anything after 9-11? I know my family did experience it. My younger brother is a priest in, uh, in Los Angeles and he has a church and in our church we, we dress kind of the traditional black robes that you, you see in the, the, the beards and stuff. So he was discriminated against right in public, you know, being accused of being a Taliban, and which is really, it, that's kind of what they dress like, too. There was some ignorance, and I think even my, my brother shared the story, and he said he walked up to the 
to the guy who was at a Costco and said, uh, come here, let me, let me tell you something. Do you see this cross here? What does that tell you? He said, and he told him, I'm Christian, I'm, and I'm American. I live here, I'm naturalized, and, and I've lived here, and I'm raising my children here. And, of course, the guy was embarrassed about it and stuff. But uh, I, I did not really experience anything myself after that. Was there any discussion between your wife or any, there's no debate or anything about how you wanted to raise your kids and things like that? Uh, So good question. I actually, uh, so Kim was uh, baptized in our church. So she kind of adopted the religion, um, goes to church uh, with us and stuff. Uh, So no, we didn't really have any conversations. It was kind of naturally assumed we're going to raise them. We're both the same religion. The kids uh, baptized in the same religion. You know, I want to talk about your religion a little bit because I remember your wedding and I remember, you know, it was in your church and uh, my family didn't have much um, uh, commitment to any church at all. So you you naturally took the stronger religious position between you and Kim. But I remember joking with my brother and others. I was like, you know, the ceremony was so ornate and formal. And I remember a lot of it was in Arabic and uh, we didn't really understand what was going on. I remember, and you can correct me, and my, my na- naivete is going to show because literally there was a scepter and there was a crown, I think, at some point, And you were sort of in this big chair that looked like a throne. <laughs> and I remember saying, to, le- leaning over to my brother saying, I-, I think Sam was just given a third world country. <laughs> rule (laughs) in addition to my sister you know being in servitude to you for the rest of your life but you know talk but I think it's important though a lot of people assume if you if you look Middle Eastern and and the the cleric wears a long black robe and has a long beard that that's that's Muslim that's Islam but but you come from that part of the world and you're Christian and talk a little bit about your religion and what that what the differences are and that was really one of the biggest things that I think going back to my sister's story uh, thinking that we have a, a better life uh, in the United States than over in Egypt. You know, obviously, Egypt goes back to the biblical days, and uh, uh, Egypt is, was always kind of uh, proud of being an accommodating culture, but there was always, always tension between uh, Muslims and Christianity. It was one way only. Uh, Christians were always discriminated against. Uh, we're the minority, uh, probably about 10 15% of the population there. Um, publicly discriminated against. Uh, typically in Egypt, uh, you can actually tell a person's religion by their name and their last name, and you can go and apply for a job. And my sister went through that, uh, where you would go and apply for a job, and he ask you, what is your name? And just when, when you give them the name, they'll say, sorry, we don't have jobs for you. You guys didn't necessarily discriminate against Muslim, but they discriminated against Christians. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And, so, uh, what, what is the name? You should say the name of your religion. What is it? It's an Orthodox, right? It's Coptic Orthodox, which is kind of Eastern. Eastern part of the world is really part of the this Orthodox. So, Russians, uh, Eastern Europeans, uh, and so on. So, during the Arab Spring a few years ago, when all of that stuff was happening in Egypt and violence and protests and craziness, and the world kind of thought, "Wow, this is going to sweep all of the Middle East and become a big revolution." What were your feelings? What did, what did you and your sisters and your family talk about back then? Did you feel any allegiance to the Egyptian people when you were watching it from afar? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I was so excited, so happy to see that, to finally see uh, at the time it seemed like uh, uh, the country was going to go through a revolution and they're going to get rid of the dictators and uh, turn it into a democracy turn the country to what it really should be or should have been. 
I talked to my brother, the priest, I was talking to him about it, and he had concerns left and right. I'm like, why? I'm like, why? Why are you concerned about this? This is all good. This is all great. But he's like, he knew that uh, eventually this would turn against, uh, uh, somehow turn against Christianity. That because what was actually happening, what we're learning, as we're finding out with the, even with dictators like Saddam Hussein and places like that, they tend to keep all the parties in their own corners and they keep the peace despite you know all the other horrible or bad things that they do something that they actually perfected that these dictators actually perfected and that they can actually hold down the violence and keep um keep everything at peace as at least it, it, it seems so christians and muslims were living together uh, uh, I guess as well as you can expect it, given uh, given the circumstances. But as soon as you get rid of the the rulers and you start going down the path of uh, of democracy or even in this case pseudo democracy, then it's not. Then it's basically became really bad. And I know there was a period of time where uh, hundreds of churches were burned and people were afraid to go in the street. It got really, really bad. Sam, I, one thing I want to ask you, maybe this isn't a fair question, but I want to ask you, uh, what are your favorite things about the U.S. that would never have happened to you or been in your life if you'd stayed in Egypt? The obvious, I wouldn't have the family I have right now. Oh, come on. Children. A, okay, fine. Your in-laws will hear. Yeah, okay, your kids. Okay. Can't, yeah. No, let's start. Come on, I can start for you. The L.A. Dodgers, that's the first I want to be right? thankful for the Dodgers, and I want to be <laughs> thankful for the L.A. Kings and the Oakland Raiders. I, I did see on your LinkedIn profile, you're still active in soccer and stuff like that. I know pe that just gets in people's blood, and they never, ever seem to give that up when they come to the United States. I work with people who are from England, and they were, you know, religiously watch soccer. Um, you know, they're huge Manchester United fans and things like that. Is that still a huge part of your life? It is. It is. I uh, I play soccer with the old pros. Believe it or not, it's a, it's a great exercise. Running for an hour and a half. Uh, I coach competitive soccer. Uh, both my girls play soccer, and I I coached them for several several years. But uh, the one one of the things I look forward to outside of family activities is coaching my my team. Uh, it's just a great relief, a great way to get away from everything and just focus on player development, watching the, the kids grow as a team, uh, seeing players that in the beginning of the season didn't believe in themselves, or even in some cases, their parents didn't really believe they have the abilities, uh, all the way to making such an impact on a team. I have, had that happen to me last season, a player that I had to talk her parents into getting her to sign for competitive. And uh, she started out uh, basically as a developmental player and at the end of the year she ended up being my player of the year and when I did the ratings kind of to see where all the players ranked she was the player of the year by far I get such pleasure and joy out of that that is a, a pretty good indication that somebody loves a sport when your own children grow out of that sport and don't play anymore and you continue to coach <laughs> exactly when Egypt plays the U.S. in World Cup who do you cheer for you know, I it hasn't happened that much, so I haven't have, haven't had to worry about it. I, I I cheer for the U.S. of course, always. You know, and wear the jerseys and the colors and stuff. And I I cheer for the uh, for uh, for Egypt. 
I would love to see the U.S. and and Egypt play at a you know quarterfinals or semifinals. I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon. But I definitely root for both teams when it comes to nations. Egypt doesn't have the rabid, violent uh, fan base that you know South American countries have, or any of the stuff we hear about. Oh yes, they do. They do. It, it's unfortunately soccer is like that. Uh, for some reason, uh, because I think part of it is for those nations, soccer is the only sport that they have. And that's really all you have to look forward to. That's it. Where you don't have, you know, four major sports and that overlap with each other. And if you have one bad season with a team like Detroit Lions, um, then you move on to the next <laughs> season. Here comes the Tiger season and then maybe the Red Wings and, and so on. So it, it's, it's, it's different here. And do you have any memories uh, or things about Egypt that are unique to that country that you really miss and things that, that, that you just can't have in the United States or memories or, or passions that the United States just can't give you? Uh, based on the limited experience I had in Egypt and what I have here, I, uh, there isn't anything I would say, wow, I, I would, and maybe that's why I haven't been back yet. Uh, I, I, I can't you know, go without X or Y. But it's got to be weird when you're a kid, and I, I think you remember saying at one point, couldn't you see the pyramids from certain parts of Cairo, if not from your home? I mean, it's got to be weird to have the, this this monument that's 4,500 years old, you know, a mile away. Well, you, you'll, you'll love this here because I actually did not get to see the pyramids until I was 15, and we lived literally less than 10 miles away, but... Uh, for a place like Cairo, 10 miles, you know, it's like New York, 10 miles could be just another state. So you don't really right. go out of your neighborhood that much. And and the only reason I get to see them is because my sister, uh, one of my sisters moved to Giza. And from her apartment, you could see uh, two of the pyramids from the ground up. The third one was blocked by, by a building, but you can see the entire pyramids. And that was my first time seeing them. I think I only saw the pyramids maybe twice. And it wasn't until I was 15. To put you on a little bit yeah. on a little bit of a hot seat here, but I was always curious about this. I don't know how political you are, but you know when Obama first came on the scene and he gave that awesome speech in Cairo and looked like he was really going to reach out and connect with that world. Is that something you took interest in, like how this president would connect with that part of the world and what he would, how he would reshape the United States image? Is that something that you gave a lot of thought to and really think about this president and how he's changed the view of the U.S. in that world? Is that something that, that crosses your mind at all over the past eight years? Uh, so it hasn't been just limited to Obama. Uh, certainly, I would hope that uh, United States would take interest in the Middle East. Um, uh, I know this could be a very sensitive uh, topic, but I, I wish the United States and the United States government could accept the Middle East for what it is and try to understand it based on what the middle, how the Middle East is, and for that matter, the Eastern culture in general. I, I heard somebody explain it to me once in that uh, in the West, it's man, then God, and in the East, it's God, then man. And unless you, uh, unless you accept that, and you, um, unless you learn to what makes people tick, what makes people excited, why do people care, why do people get so overworked over religion, uh, you can't try to explain it by your own thinking because it's not going to work. It's not going to apply. You just have to accept it. I have not seen any of the recent presidents doing that or even the United States government. 
And I'm sure there's a reason for it. You know, there's obviously you got uh, Israeli politics and you got to take sides and stuff. And I don't think we have to take sides. I think you can make both both sides work. But I don't know much about politics, but it just it seems that we're going about it in the wrong way. How do you, uh, you know, as the member of a family of immigrants who came over here legally and jumped through all the hoops that the U.S. uh, makes people jump through, how do you feel about Trump and, you know, all of the controversy around him and his immigration ideas? Yeah, well, my older daughter is threatening to move already, even though she can't. She's 15, Sydney. So uh, from what she's hearing... Uh, again, this is, we know Trump is doing this. I don't know where you guys stand on this. I think I might know you, Chris Otto, about this. You but... don't know where we stand. You are clearly <laughs> not listening to the podcast, my friend. Actually, I do. I am. I just, I'm, I'm giving you a little bit of a an out here, but Trump has nothing to do with this stuff. You know, legal, illegal aliens. Uh, it, it's, it's a, yeah, I came here legally and we paid our dues. I became naturalized. I'm a U.S. citizen and everything, and I, and I wish everybody would do the same. Um, at the same time, if there, if we have very, 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 very poor neighbors just 40 miles from where I live here, we can't just ignore them and say, build the wall and, you know, let them deal with their with their own situation. That's not how I view the United States. And I, and I know we, we get ourselves in trouble by thinking that way because now, well, then we got to accommodate everybody. We got to bring everybody in. Uh, if you're here and you're working, you're hardworking, and you're you're raising a family, and somehow you didn't go through the system and you didn't, you're not a, a citizen. It doesn't mean that you're not a human being or you're not American or you don't care about America. Uh, you can't you can't really look at it that way and say, well, too bad you've lived here 19 years, but you're illegal. You don't even count. I, I just I don't see it that way. I think one one of the dangers of Trump's rhetoric is that it it does run counter to what the rest of the world has looked to America for over the you know the last two hundred years. So I'm I'm wondering. I mean, you were educated uh, almost completely as a child in Egypt, having stayed there until you were seventeen. So what what were you taught in Egyptian schools? What was your view of America? Was it the promised land where everyone's rich and wealthy and happy, or or was it uh, something other than that. So obviously, being uh, it, 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 it's, it was in Mexico, of course. So it's not like you know across the border you can look and can see it. Uh, we're talking we're half the world away. So it wasn't viewed as the destination. Everybody uh, couldn't wait to get to the promised land. The United States is the place to be. And again, this is in the seventies now, as far as far as you know, I could remember. Um, family and stuff, you know, viewed it, yeah, you're moving to the United States, oh, wow, that's great, you know, it's a great country and, you know, lots of opportunities, but it wasn't like everybody, you know, put a United States map and and that's what they focused on, that's where they wanted to go. I think certainly Europe was probably more appropriate because it was closer, but not necessarily the United States. And and United States was uh, and Egypt have always been friendly, so it wasn't like viewed as, uh, you know, anything other than, you know, it, it, it's a natural thing or, you know, for if, you, if this is something that you wanted to do. Uh, but it wasn't, again, there is no way I would compare it to say if you lived in Mexico, like I said, 40 miles from where I'm sitting right now, because you could see it across the border. That, that makes it the destination. The United States wasn't necessarily that way yeah. in Egypt. But was it, was it a, a, you know, 
the leading power power on the planet to you? Or I guess so. Seventeen that'd be seventy nine. I guess it's height of the Cold War. You're probably Soviet Union, U.S. Did you have any perspective on that when you were growing up? I remember actually there was some sort of something about in the early seventies about it, it, we were like minutes away from. Russia or Soviet Union bombing the United States or, or or vice versa and it just it seemed that that was dominating the news and, and the newspapers and of course we didn't have internet or anything you had to wait until the next day to get the newspaper and it was like always you're looking for that headline what is that headline gonna say I remember those days but in the early 80s I remember being taught uh, I think in high school about the concept of mad mad which was mutually assured destruction where you know the idea that if we launched a missile seconds later as soon as they picked it up on radar they would launch a missile and that would be it the entire planet would be wiped out i will remember lying in bed at night just uh you know after a day at school reading about that stuff or learning about that stuff and actually laying in bed going i wonder how crazy the russians really are you know what i mean like it did put that in your brain it affected your thinking yeah well it's, it, there was a sting did a song called do the russians love their children too I thought that was a really cool yeah. song back then, early '80s. But yeah, it was. I think. I think this generation, millennial, you know, Sam, your kids, my kids, the kids of this generation don't understand whether we were actually that close to nuclear war or not. That we we were led to believe that it was just a button push away. And I, I grew up during the '67 war between uh, Israel and Egypt, and I remember even living in Cairo. I remember uh, when we had. The lights were out, and we uh, we had to hide in the first on the first floor, and you could hear fighter jets going by. And during the day, you can see uh, some missiles flying by. Nothing really came down in in Cairo itself, or where we lived, uh, the neighborhood. But I grew up through that, so you kind of start getting used to that thing. But then the the fight between the Soviet Union and uh, and uh, and United States, yeah, that was going to be basically the end of it all. Yeah, and everybody else was sort of a, a, a victim and a bystander of that. What is the worst thing about the United States? What is it about this country that you absolutely do not like or, or don't understand or just can't fathom? Is there a shallowness to the culture? I mean, and I and I give credit to anyone who raises kids in this day and age. It can't be easy, but there's such a shallowness to the culture. I would be, and I don't have kids, but I'm always amazed. I would be really afraid of exposing my kids to a lot of the stuff, just everyday stuff you see. That just, I don't know. No, definitely, definitely me. the shallowness. And you can imagine the culture shock of moving. Uh, I think L.A. is very shallow. Again, I love L.A., but uh, LA is very shallow, and people just are barely even skin deep. They're they're lost. They're lost souls in the most cases. They're uh, they have no depth. They have no core. They have no uh, uh, they, they have no values. Uh, and, and I'm not talking. You know, I'm not sitting here. Uh, you know, on my soapbox and saying you know they're all idiots and and dumb. I'm just it's just shallow. And actually. Believe it or not, so part of the positive things that by moving to Detroit is that I actually uh, got to see genuine people. For the most part, other you know the ones where, where I felt a little bit uncomfortable, people were genuine, people were deep, took interest, took time, they're not in a rush. So that actually kind of uh, brought me back to how people normally are. And then now, actually, and then I'll, I'll give San Diego, lived here uh, the longest of any places now, 21 years. People are genuine in San Diego also, despite being 
two hours away from LA, somehow uh, that that mentality, that uh, that type of culture, didn't really make it all the way down south. So. Uh, yes, shallowness, I, I agree, is, is something I don't like, but I think the environments where I've lived, it has been it has been better than okay. It is interesting that people from other countries, when they come here, they land in New York or they land in Los Angeles or you know other big cities. Uh, you rarely, every once in a while, you'll hear about somebody who moved to Iowa because they had an uncle who lived there or whatever. But what a different perception of America you would get depending on where you land. It has it has a huge effect on where you end up in the environment and the type of people that you hang out with and and what you get out of it. Uh, it, it and it's just it's the luck of the draw. I really think like I wonder sometimes how do people end up moving to such a why would a certain type of culture end up you know in Detroit or in Iowa or or in Pennsylvania. But I think it's obviously that's where they have family or there's already communities around that. But but it really affects how you actually perceive uh, the country. Well, you know, the nature of podcasting is such that someone in Europe or Egypt or South Africa could be listening to this. So I just want to say, forget the coast. You're welcome here in the Midwest. We open, we, we have Glad you're here. open arms, absolutely, and, and, it's, and you wouldn't have to put up with the shallowness of Los Angeles. And you're our first international guest, and we're expecting you to bring some demographics with you as well. <laughs> Little, you, are, you represent diversity for us, Sam. I'll be happy to bring my 97 uh, Twitter followers. How's that? <laughs> and we will take We'll them. take all of them. That's <laughs> we'll <fun>. take them. <laughs> so I want to ask you, this is a question we asked a couple of weeks ago, and and it really kind of spurs uh, interesting answers. Older people, senior citizens, people at the end of their lives always say, I look back on my life and I have no regrets. Chris and I, I think, both agree that's bullshit. If you don't have any regrets, then you really didn't live a decent life. But we all make mistakes. You, you know, you're at the halfway point kind of like we are. Any regrets, things you look back and say, wow, I really wish that had gone differently? Uh, yeah, I, I think probably career regrets. Uh, I kind of, in the beginning part of my career, I kind of let my career drive me uh, as opposed to me taking ownership of it and kind of, uh, and again, it goes back to being here in the United States, land of opportunities, right? You can do whatever you want uh, to do. Uh, so maybe not really capitalizing on that. I, I, I don't know how many uh, people at our age group here think that maybe we are actually 10 years younger. Somebody kind of cheated us. We're actually 15 years younger, you know, the 50s than you, 35 or whatever that is. Um, and, I and love I your I math. Like... That's what I keep telling myself. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. We keep getting younger and younger. I love yeah, it. Yeah, let's go with that. Yeah. I, so I guess, you know, early on, you don't, you don't take advantage of the opportunities. And I, that doesn't have anything to do with culture. Or I think it's just maturity. Sometimes you don't t- uh, take advantage of opportunities. And you look back and you say, well, but you, I could have. Yeah, but you know what? That's a great point. It, it, you 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 say it's about youth and it is, you know, maybe I'm sure, you know, Chris, we treat you and I both tried stuff when we were young, but maybe it is about the culture. Maybe it is. Maybe we both knew that there, if this doesn't work out, if the acting thing doesn't work out, or if this doesn't work out, that we went to a big 10 school and we're intelligent and blah, blah, blah. And there was always something else we could pick up or do or that or that. So maybe we didn't have that sense of urgency. Yeah. You know, that's an interesting thought because, uh, Americans, and Sam, you probably have an interesting take on this. Americans are so 
it's so drilled into our heads that we must be successful. We must, you know, be wealthy. We want to be, I've heard people say in the last 10 years, I'm going to be one of the, in the 1%. You know, everybody wants to be in that 1%. And the fact of the matter is 99% don't make it, right? So, but we're so driven to that. And if by 40 years old or 50 years old, you're not making the high six figures income you thought you were, suddenly this midlife crisis comes along like you are a failure or, you know, you're not, you didn't achieve the American level of success. But, you know, I, I have friends or people I know who grew up in France or who grew up in Europe, and they, they seem to be a little easier going about life and enjoying the moment and enjoying being 22, 28, 32, 38, rather than going, going, going and pushing for that time when they can say, now I'm rich. I'm a rich American. I made it. You know, I think maybe other cultures enjoy, enjoy the journey a little bit more is that does that make sense sam it, it does absolutely and 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 i think uh we're a very competitive culture here um, i think we get it from sports and and there it's great to be competitive you want to you want to be your best if you're going to do something uh you got to be you got to do your best at it you're not going to be the best but you got to do your best at it and it, it's it's like a vortex i think we've gotten to the point where we we breeded that culture. We got to be competitive. You got to be better. But then the, the better you get, then you want to get better. And then now we've kind of basically outpaced ourselves. That's why we don't stop and enjoy our success or uh, what we've accomplished. Be grateful for what we have and 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 enjoy. Take time to enjoy it. We we just get caught up in that. Well, I I've done that. Well, that's great. But then. I got to do more and I can do more. Let, I, let, me, let me do more. And the more you get, the faster you go. So you get the, the closer you get to that center of that vortex, it just it spirals uh, faster and faster and faster. And we, we don't know where to draw the line. No, I completely agree with you. I think Americans are far too competitive. But I, I just want to point out that I actually had that thought way before you did. <laughs> You know, one thing we didn't touch on, I want to be sure to touch on this because I, I just want to share one story and then talk a little bit about this. Um, so when we met you, I was, my sister was pretty young. She was 17, right? She was 17. Yes. And still in high school. And you were, you're eight years older than she is? Yes. Yeah. So you're 25. You're like a software engineer at a big company. You've got this great job. Uh, my sister's a senior in high school. And when you picked her up on Friday nights or whatever, you would come roaring up into our driveway <laughs> in your hot red Toyota Celica convertible uh, and whisk her away and not come home till like two in the morning, which was two hours past the curfew that I had when I was in high school, which pissed me off. Uh, in fact, I, I still need to talk to my parents about that. But so we had this image of you as this hot, young, executive, older guy taking our high school sister, robbing the cradle. Um, I mean, that's at that time, that was a huge age difference. I mean, you're you're an established man out in the world and she's a, a high school senior. That was that was pretty gutsy. If I may just say you were literally ahead of your time. You were a trendsetter. <laughs> that's right. Of course, it was L.A., so I don't know. Far, far, far from the truth, uh, Chris. I wasn't that self-confident of myself or felt like, you know, I had accomplished so much or or anything. It was... I take it a day at a time, you know, here's what I have, here's what the opportunity brings today. Okay, what do we do with that? And uh, certainly 
1989 red convertible Celica that you're referring to certainly <laughs> didn't go that fast. There wasn't a Porsche or anything like that, but uh, okay. Certainly... But, all right. Well, well, let's let's not even mention that your next car was a Porsche. Well, we won't talk about that. Well, but I mean, you don't. If you don't have a lot of confidence, you don't go out and buy a red convertible in Los Angeles. I mean, come on. You have to admit you were doing pretty well. Well, I I guess, but you know. But I guess maybe that's what Los Angeles said I should do. I'm, you know, I'm out of college and I get a job and I can afford the car like that. Then that's what I should get. Uh, I don't know. Chris, I, weren't you listening? He said it's a shallow culture. He was doing what everyone else was doing. He was faking <laughs> that's it. Right. I was fitting right. in. I was fitting in, right? <laughs> Yeah, that's right. Well, yeah, and you certainly did. Well, we were just this, you know, conservative Midwestern family from Grand Rapids, Michigan, who was forced against our will to move to Los Angeles. And uh, yeah, you you sort of represented everything we were scared to death of living in Los <laughs> Angeles. <laughs> Chris and I have talked on the last couple of podcasts about the age difference, you know, how young is too young and all that stuff. I, you know, Sam, you even met Nina last week when I was in California. She's quite a bit younger. But um Talk a little. I don't know if I've you and I have ever had this discussion. Have you felt the difference between you and Kim over the years, and and has it been a problem? So we have felt the difference because also don't forget that you get a factor in the cultural difference, uh, the upbringing. Absolutely. Yeah. So I think yeah. when you combine that those together, uh, I think they kind of magnify each other out a little bit more than normally one would. Um, I, I think, and I think more the culture than the age difference. Um, maybe I'll see it later on when I'm older, and I, I just want to sit around and watch TV. And she wants to travel the world. Where has the real conflict been? If you can, is there anything you can pinpoint? Whether it was, you know, uh, the, the choices you made in parenting, or religion, or political discussions, or or what know. TV shows you have to endure. <laughs> 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 yeah, well, we can thank uh, the DVR for that, right? I guess the biggest differences have always been cultural, uh, especially um, not that uh, Chris, you and your family, you guys obviously were middle class family. Uh, I, I certainly grew up in a lower middle class family. And plus, it's a third world, world country versus the United States. So I think the upbringings and the expectations um as to what you can have, and, and that changes over time anyways, too. I think maybe those are the things that may have led to most of the, uh, uh, what would have been conflicts. Um, so it, the upbringing, which I guess ties directly to the culture. So I think th that's probably where, where I would say um, uh, would be the essence of it. Uh, the age itself, a little bit, but not, not as much. Was there anything difficult for you about marrying into this white midwestern family having to deal with you chris no <laughs> <laughs> besides that obviously uh, no i and you know I, I don't think i have said this before uh to you chris or to your family but marrying it into your family i feel like i've left i've lived two lives so far one in egypt and i was brought up in egypt and and I feel like I was also brought up in the United States, uh, in uh, um, Grand Rapids, uh, Royal Oak, where you guys were born. I, I know everything you guys have done, the home you've uh, grew, grown up with. I've met some of your uh, younger friends. It's all almost like I lived that life, too. And that to me, that added to me another perspective that I would never have had had I just stayed within my culture. And I think I would have been a completely different person. 
in in the way I view um, politics, uh, religion, you know, upbringings, and so on. And and that and that that was a huge positive change for me. So I want to just to wrap up here. I want we're going to try something new. Uh, Chris and I talked a little bit this week about. Um, uh, asking guests the same three questions at the end of the interview. And, uh, you know, the questions may change, but I think it might be a little interesting to hear your take on this, especially. So the first question I want to ask you, and, you know, it doesn't have to be a long, drawn, you know, lengthy, well-thought-out answer, just the top of your head. But so the first one, what would you attempt if you knew you could not fail? Flying. Yeah, and uh, when you were young, what did you want to be when you when you grew up? What did you dream about being when you were younger? I wanted to be an architect and a soccer professional soccer player. Okay, and lastly, the song that you think of when you think about growing up, the song that best represents your growing up. Pink Floyd. Oh, nice. What song? Um, the Wall. That whole yes. album, yeah. Pink Floyd, The Wall. Nice. Sam, I want to, uh, you know, I know it's tough to come on and have your brother-in-law ask you these questions and have it be recorded and people are going to listen to it, but um, awesome to have you do this for us and uh, I, I appreciate it. Chris, is there anything? It was great, Sam. Thank you so much for, uh, for coming on and sharing. It's a great story. Yes, thank you very much. And I just want to put a shout out because I know Chris Kelsch's family listens to this. So any of Kelsch's family that wants to come on this broadcast or podcast, please email me directly and we'll talk and arrange that because Chris is hiding you guys. I just want to say that. Just shout that out there. Um, all right. So that's it. Again, thanks, Sam. And our email address, middle at gmail.com. Look for us on Facebook and Twitter and iTunes soon. And... Uh, Thanks, Sam. Appreciate it, man. Thank you, guys. Thanks, you guys. Take care. It was fun.